is where we're also going. So turn to Exodus chapter 11. So a couple cool things. How many of you guys have heard about the eclipse or about the big thing that's supposed to be happening on September 23rd with a lady giving birth to things in the stars or something like that? How many of you guys have heard of that? Just know what I'm talking about at least a little bit. So I originally heard it and I'm like, that's fantastic. There's nothing that I can do to change anything. What will be, will be. While that is true to a certain extent, we also are intercessors in this world. And we actively play a role in what happens here on earth, believe it or not. Sometimes we can get lost in the idea that I can't really make that much of a difference. I'm just this or that person. I'm, who am I? What can I do to change this whole world? I want to tell you that God foretells what is coming so that we can actively play a role in how it unfolds. Do you believe that? Okay. The prayers that we pray change the world. Do you believe that? When we pray, it changes the world. So when we begin to see signs in the heavens, this is God speaking to us just for kicks. You're in Exodus. Turn to Job 38. Just for kicks. Just for kicks. Because the Bible is fun. I have so much fun with the Bible. Thirty-eight. Look at verse 31. It says, can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Or lead out the bear with its cubs? You might have a footnote that says Leo. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Go back to Genesis 1, just, just for fun. Genesis 1. Look at verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Do you know that before we had all the technology that we have, that seafarers used the stars in the sky to determine where they were at on the earth? Do you know also that the signs of the zodiac actually trace back farther than what they're now used for today, which is for fortune telling and horoscopes and all the stuff like that? Well, it originally was something different, okay? You trace it back, and in two weeks, we're going to talk about this more whenever we get into trumpets and the Day of Atonement and tabernacles. But you actually see that God speaks through the stars. Have you ever looked at the stars and they're like, yeah, that's Orion. And you're like, how from four little stars do you get like a guy with a bow? Have you ever thought that? Am I the only one that thinks? I'm looking at that and they're like drawing a whole picture around it. And I'm like, I don't see how you get that. Well, that's because it has a meaning before that. It was part of a story. And believe it or not, there's a good case to be made that it was the story of the gospel. And it was God's plan for redemption for all mankind. And that it was even passed down from way, way long ago. 
So look forward to that. Suffice it to say, the sun turning dark and the moon turning to blood and different things lining up, they do mean something. And they do coincide with specific dates for a reason. So we'll dig into that in a few weeks. Uh, but I want you guys to know that uh, God speaks through the signs that are in the heavens, and man can't do anything to change it. When you read about God's eternal qualities are made known through what has been created so that no man has an excuse. I want to tell you, included in that are the heavens. Do you know that each star has a name? There are so many stars, we couldn't even talk about a number that would be comprehensible or comprehensible. Yeah, I can't even say that word. That's how many stars there are. <clears throat> but God has done this so that we could know him. When they look out and they see these galaxies, even beyond ours, and there's like an infinite number of galaxies just like ours or different than ours and so vast. And you just realize, man, they'll never be able to get to the end. Yeah, just like we'll never be able to get to the end of who he is or his love for us. People have been studying this book, just a book. I think mine has 1,657 pages. That's it. Men who were raised in societies where this is all that they studied, who've been studying it for eight decades, still have their minds blown on a regular basis by this book. 2,500 prophecies in here, 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled. For all intents and purposes, that's impossible. There's no way that that many things could be fulfilled. Eight of them being fulfilled. It's like your odds are better at winning the lottery. 2,000 of them, that's impossible. It takes more faith to believe that this is not real than to accept what it says. All right, that's my plug. <clears throat> How many of you guys know what the word assimilation means? We've talked about it a lot in here. Someone holler out some sort of definition of assimilation. Just shoot for it. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. What's that? Conforming, Conforming to culture. I like it. <clears throat> assimilation. Remember this word. It's so important. It's the process whereby a culture or a nation or a group of people lose their identity and become more like the culture around them. There are people in here from all over the world. If we were to start listing off countries, we would find people whose ancestors go back to all over the planet. See people from Italy, right? We'd see people from Uganda. We would see people from... Sharon, where are you from originally? Where's Sharon? Is she not in here? Where are you originally from? Norway? Norway. My goodness. We would find people from all over the place in here. <clears throat> but you came here and now you're American, right? And so you don't look like a Norwegian. You may not look like a Mexican in the way that you carry out all your culture. You may not look like a German or an Italian, right? In the way that you carry out your culture. You might look more like an American, now, whatever you think about that, it doesn't really matter right now whether you think that that's right or wrong to lose your culture wherever you go. The point is, is that as Christians, we were never supposed to lose ours. 
Okay, so hear me out. <clears throat> when we talk about the things that we do as Christians in America, we might have different ways that we celebrate, different ways that we interpret. You might come from a Pentecostal background. Someone else might come from a Methodist background or a Lutheran or a Catholic. You might be converted from Islam. You might be converted from Judaism. Whatever it is, we all come with differences to the table. Now, the way that Dan chooses to dress is Dan's right. Dan has a right to dress however he wants to within reason, right? That doesn't matter to me how Dan dresses. If Dave likes to play basketball for fun, that's great. That doesn't affect me really one way or another. But we can all unite around Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the dead. And we're united in that way. There are additional things that get lost over time in the way that we carry out our beliefs, our Christianity. <clears throat> to me, I very much care why things are the way that they are. <clears throat> Most people might not. I've met many people who have said, all I need to know is that Jesus died on the cross for me. And that's it. I don't need to worry about anything else. And that's kind of true. The problem is, is that as we live, we encounter different situations. For instance, the man that says, all I need to know is that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, and he saved me from my sins, and I'm going to be with him in glory. That's true in that statement. But when it comes time to celebrate Christmas, that same person that says, all I need to know is that Jesus died on the cross for my sins... And then raised from the dead now has decisions to make, doesn't he? He has decisions to make about how he's going to celebrate. Maybe he likes to read the Christmas story in the morning. Maybe that same person likes to go to a specific kind of church. You say, well, I thought that all that mattered was that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. Well, yeah, that's true. But I also have these other likes and dislikes and things. That, that's what I'm going to talk about today. We can all agree that we unite around the cross and Jesus paying for our sins and rising from the dead and that we'll be with him again. What I'm talking about is those things that we might take for granted. Where you say, I don't need to worry about that. And yet you get swept along in the culture because the culture does this or that. And so you don't make decisions about those things because all that matters is that Jesus died on the cross. So I don't need to make decisions about these things. I just get swept along. And maybe you get swept along by the culture. For instance, people care about Hollywood actors and athletes. That's just part of the culture. So you also got to care about, care about the actors and the athletes and what's going on in their lives. People watch movies and TV. So you should be caught up on pop culture to a certain extent so you can carry uh, on conversations, right? With Christians, we sing certain kinds of songs and music. You get swept along in the culture, either of America or of Christianity or the church. And there are decisions that you don't have to make if you don't want to. You can choose just to be carried along by the way that things are, right? I want to talk about those things today. Because to, at a certain point, 
the longer that you serve Jesus, more and more things start to matter and other things start to matter less. I start to care less and less about acceptance from men. Less and less as I follow Jesus. I start to care more and more about the things that please his heart, right? I start to care less and less about me being in control or things being the way that I think they should be. And I start to care more and more about his kingdom and how he desires things to be. Amen? So as we serve him, we ask over and over again that he opens our eyes to the things that please him. Things that are true, things that are real, things that are right. I think what we'll see today as we dig into Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits is that there is something so enormous and eternal that when you compare it to what most of us have just been swept along in for so long, that you'll go, wait a second, can I jump out of this river that's carrying me along so that I have to just act like everyone else and just do whatever popular culture seems to be? And can I do that instead? Can I do this instead? Because that seems way more real, way deeper, way more eternal. What I like to look into is the origin of things. I want to know these things that I've been doing for so long, where'd they come from? Like how many people have been told not to put their elbows on the table? Have you ever heard that? You know where that comes from? Because we accept it like that's rude at the dinner table to put your elbows on the table. Well, where that came from was when men were getting drafted into the war, right? These commanders or sergeants, uh, uh, whatever the titles were back then, would come recruiting. They would walk into bars and they would look for men who'd put their elbows on the table. Why? Because when you're in a ship and it's rocking back and forth, you're holding your meal with your elbows and you're eating like this. So they knew that these people had experience on ships, and they would look for people who had experience. Thus was born, don't put your elbows on the table. Moms didn't want their boys being taken off to war. So let me ask you, with that knowledge, do you feel a little more freedom to put your elbows on the table? Do you feel that liberation? This is just elbows on the table. Imagine if what we're about to talk about allows you to be free like that towards Jesus. So we're going to dig into just a few things today. Pastor Nick's going to cover. Yeah, sure. I'll take it. Thanks. Pastor Nick's going to cover Pentecost next week. But my hope is that as we get to the end of this, it'll simply be. Hey, yeah, I want, to do, I want to do that instead. I want to, I want to put my elbows on the table sometimes because it's more comfortable that way. But spiritually, right? I want to spiritually put my elbows on the table and start enjoying some freedom that I've been given. All right, so here we go. We're going to journey. You guys are so good. You guys are so good. Love you. You're my family. Exodus 11 verse 5. Now, as we read about these things today, I'm going to be a little up front.
You've heard of Passover, you've heard of unleavened bread, you've heard of first fruits. I'm going to show how they're for everybody. They're not just a Jewish thing. They're the Lord's festivals. Okay? So today, if at the end of it you're not convinced, that's okay. You can continue to Romans 14 gives you a full it's like the 5th amendment of Christianity, right? These are disputable matters. Each person can do it in faith as under the Lord, right? Romans 14. I plead Romans 14. You can do whatever you want, right? No, you can't, but you get what I'm saying. So, but if, if, if today this word not only convinces your mind, but in your heart, you feel something stirring and you feel the spirit affirming what's being said. Can we all agree? Now, this is a big decision that we're about to make together. Can we all agree that if it makes sense to our minds and we can feel the Holy Spirit affirming it in us, that we'll be willing to change? Can we lift our hands? All right, good. Then we're all up for the task. If our minds can be convinced and the Holy Spirit convicts us, then we're all up for the task of changing. You may not know what you agreed to in doing that right there. All right, so let's go. Verse 5. So you all know what's happening. All the Israelites are in Egypt Right now, classic story. They're there for 400 years. And then all of a sudden, Moses comes along because God has heard the cry of these, uh, royal, these royal people who are being treated like slaves. And God has sent them a deliverer. But what that looks like initially is plagues are happening. And it's causing lots of trouble. And all of a sudden, it culminates in one final plague, the plague of the firstborn. So in verse... Five, this is what Moses hears from the Lord. It says to the people, Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. This is scary, scary news. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than has ever been or ever will be again. Now, if that was it, everybody would freak out. But there's a but. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Do you see that word distinction? This means that when God looks out on all of Egypt, he doesn't just see all of his sons and daughters, and everybody's the exact same. That's a happy message. It's just not a true one. God does not look out at the world and see everybody the exact same. Now, when you're in Christ, there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, right? But God looks at Israel different than Egypt, here in this moment. And that causes him to make provision. Look at Exodus 12, 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. They're going to take blood to differentiate themselves from the rest of Egypt. Look at Exodus 12, 12 and 13. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. 
I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. He says, I see you as different because you are my people. I will provide protection from you and I will distinguish you from the rest of the world or Egypt by way of the lamb's blood. We can see this now. It's becoming more and more clear. We see that in Egypt, the people of God are distinguished from the people of the world by the lamb's blood. Do we see this? Passover has always been about this idea. If something doesn't intervene, I'm going to die. Think about this. When it comes to Passover, when you look at Passover, when you hear the word Passover, I want us to equate it with this idea. Without intervention, I'm going to die. That's what Passover is all about. So with that being said, oh, by the way, at the end of Exodus 12, he also says, hey, Someone among you that's just there temporarily or that's just a hired hand, they can't take part in this. That's not allowed. If they want to take part in this, they must be circumcised, right? Because it was the same, to, to be an Israelite, it was the same price for everyone. Everyone paid the same price. No one could just by way of proxy, hey, hey, my, uh, my boss is a, is a, a Christian, I mean a, an Israelite, right? So, so that means that I should be saved as well, right? I've got a friend, a really good friend who is a Christian. I mean, you know, God, can you let me in on the basis of that? No. Unless you were an Israelite or unless you had paid the same price, you were not allowed to partake in putting the lamb's blood on your doorpost and eating the lamb that night. Let's go back to Genesis 2. So now, have you guys heard when it comes to the Old Testament or when it comes to like the law and we talk about things that are from the Old Testament, have you ever heard people say, well, that's Old Covenant? You guys ever heard people say that? That's Old Covenant. I want to tell you, that is like the king of all dismissal statements. That's Old Covenant. Where that's typically coming from is someone who has not seen how Jesus affirms what we read in the Old Testament. Because if they saw that Jesus actually affirmed what they're dismissing as Old Covenant, if we show that Jesus was actually encouraging people to see these things, to do these things, and that all throughout the New Testament it was being affirmed over and over and over again, they wouldn't be so quick to dismiss something as Old Covenant. So when you hear anybody say that, put your guard up. Very quickly, I want to encourage everyone in this room, when you hear someone say, that's Old Covenant, put your guard up against that. Because to say that means that God at some point adapted. That God at some point evolved and got better at doing his job. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If there are things that you don't understand about him, don't make him fit into your box. Let him be God and say, hey, I'm still searching that out, right? Okay, fair enough. Genesis 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. 
But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The first command that we see God speaking to Adam is you are free. You are free. You as a people of God are free. Never forget that. The first thing that God wants you to know is that you are free. With that freedom comes restrictions. That does not negate your freedom. It defines your freedom. Because we can be free, but we're not free to sin, are we? So we are free with boundaries. Look at Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves. What kind of leaves? Fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Why did they make a covering for themselves? They were ashamed. They were afraid. We see that all of a sudden these people who were walking around naked and unashamed now all of a sudden became ashamed and afraid. I want to tell you, it was right that they were ashamed. Okay? God didn't want them to remain in a place of shame. The way to be free of shame is not to defy all social norms and just be naked. The way to be unashamed is to recognize that we are supposed to be clothed, but clothed rightly. There is a physical shame that comes from someone being naked, or at least there should be, from someone being naked. But spiritually, when we are naked, we are invited to clothe our shame with the sacrifice of Jesus. With the blood of Jesus. They at this point. Now were distrusting. Towards one another. This is why they covered themselves. They didn't trust themselves. And they didn't trust each other. They couldn't trust the motives of the other. Because they saw. That they each put themselves in the place of God. And they made a decision. For their own benefit. And the shame that entered in was because there was a lack of trust. There was a lack of love now, and fear entered in. What we see is that if something doesn't intervene, they're going to die. Why? Because we just read the commandment that said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And so we see something has to be done. Someone's got to come and intervene. And it's got to happen soon because they don't know the timeline in between when they eat and when they're going to die. Look at Genesis 3.21. Just a short little verse here. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Did you catch it? There was Passover. How did he get the garments of skin? Sacrifice an animal. To get it. You say, well, how do we know that he sacrificed an animal? I read on some uh, distant website. I'm going to tell you. It was a sacrifice of an animal because you see Abel, his son, raising flocks and then sacrificing them to the Lord. Where would he have got that idea from? He wasn't doing it for food because they're still vegetarians, right? So you see, God sacrifices an animal and clothes them with a skin. 
Now what's interesting here is that this is sufficient covering for their shame. When they took fig leaves and sewed the fig leaves together, was that sufficient? No, that was a man-made covering. It just so happens to be that the fig tree represents natural, physical Israel. When we, in the physical, try and cover our own shame, we're still destined for death. But if God will intervene, He can cover our shame. He can cover us from death that's passing by soon. Let's look at a story. Um, go to Deuteronomy 22 just for a quick refresher on something. Deuteronomy 22, 22. says, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Now, is this a part of the Torah? First five books of the Bible? Did we just read something from the Bible? Yes, not a trick question. Go to John 8. By the way, what does Matthew 5.17 Say, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So we know that Jesus, the man here on earth, did not come to do away with the law. So as we read through John 8, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 1. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought in a woman caught in adultery. What should happen to her based off what we just read? She should die. Brought her to stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Now, very quickly, who are they missing? The man, right. So, were they concerned with fulfilling the law to the T? No, no, no. What was happening? They were asking this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, Jeremiah 2.13, if you're ever interested, seems to answer what he wrote in the dust. That's Jeremiah 2.13. But that's not the key point. At this time, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now, based off what Jesus said, any one of you who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Would Jesus, based off that statement, have been able to throw a stone at her? Yes. The kicker here is that Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. How is that possible? If Jesus didn't come to abolish the law... How does he not pick up a stone and start stoning her to death at this point? Unless he's breaking the law. How do you reconcile these two? Jesus, I don't want to spoil it. Go to 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Oh, it's so good. What you have to ask yourself is, Okay, according to the pattern that I know of God that I'm seeing in the words so far, when people are in trouble, when people need some sort of intervention or they're going to die, how does God move? 
1 Corinthians 5, 7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Why was he able to set that woman free? Because he took the condemnation on himself. It was accounted for. The sins were accounted for. They were laid on the lamb. And the blood of the lamb was her covering. Passover, without intervention, I am going to die. When Jesus dies on the cross, he does it to keep us from dying. And living that way forever. Let's move on to unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Anytime that you hear unleavened bread, I want you to associate it with this thought. Unleavened bread has always been, get out everything that doesn't belong. It's always been this way. Turn to Deuteronomy 16. Now remember, we're going back and forth from Israel to Adam and Eve to us today. We're doing that so that the lines can blur, so that we don't see any difference between the way that God was before and the way that he is now. This is why we're doing it. This is how you should read the Bible. Don't read it and think that God was version 1.0 in the Old Testament, and that he got an upgrade to 2.0 and now doesn't care if you sin or not. That's not how it is. Okay, to understand who he is, we have to take in all of what he gives us in his word. Deuteronomy 16 Verse 3 and 4. It says, Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain until morning. So what was... Yeast. Yeast is this microscopic thing that's so tiny. If you were to try and get yeast out of your house, especially after you've been using yeast to make bread for so long. Has anybody ever ordered yeast packets or gotten yeast packets from the store? It's like these millions of little tiny things. Yeast. It's microscopic, actually. And the, the, the secret is, is that if you were to try and get all of it out of your house, especially back in those times, they never would have been able to. Not on their own. They never would have been able to. They'd actually have to move to get out. He tells them to get all the yeast out of their house because they're going to make bread that they're going to have to eat quickly. The bread is going to have to be eaten quickly, so you're not going to have time to wait for it to rise. Therefore, don't let any yeast be found in your home because it's just going to slow you down. It's going to hinder your journey. It's going to keep you from doing things when you're supposed to do them. So get it all out. Unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. They examined their house for seven days. Unleavened bread lasts for a week. Sabbath on one end, Sabbath on another. Seven days of unleavened bread. What we see is in uh, Genesis 3, 8, way before unleavened bread. Let's turn there. 
way before unleavened bread was ever instituted as a feast, that God does something very peculiar that looks a lot like someone searching through a house. So look at Genesis 3.8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Let me ask you, if God, in his infinite ability, has to ask, where are you? Like a mom in a mall who's lost their toddler. Don't you think that might be a, a little degrading? to ascribe that to God, that he's lost track of the only two humans on earth that he's responsible for? Might there be a different message that's trying to be communicated to us as we read this? Where are you? Where are you? He's looking for them. He's searching for them. Like someone would do if they were searching for leaven in the house. And what does he do when he finds them? Talks to him for a little bit. But then look at Genesis 3, 22 and 24. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So God, if he's looking around, right? Where are you? Here you are. This doesn't belong in here. And then he gets it out. This is what happens to Adam and Eve. They're removed from the garden. Why? Because they were found to be with sin, removed from the house, not to be let back in until it was clean, until they were clean, until they were ready. Unleavened bread, get everything out that doesn't belong. They didn't belong in that state with sin in their hearts. They couldn't remain in there anymore. And so he got it out. How many of you have been to the spring festivals where we've scooped the bread as we've gone around with the candle, scooped the bread onto the spoon? And the bread is like leaven. And we use it. And then what do we do with it? We burn it. We get it out, right? We get it out. It doesn't belong. This is what happens with Adam and Eve. Look at Psalm 139. Listen to the way that David talks about it. David understands this. He would have been raised with this as a tradition. Psalm 139, verse 23. He says, search me. Oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He says, God, do to me like someone would have to do in their house as they look for leaven. Look for leaven in, in my heart. Look for any yeast that doesn't belong there. And then get it out, Lord. If you find anything in there, please get it out because it doesn't belong. Unleavened bread is all about getting out what doesn't belong. Passover, 
without intervention, I'm going to die. We watch this is a progression of redemption. What we're about to see with first fruits is going to put a cap on it. And this is just the first three of seven festivals. These are meant to teach little ones as you're raising them up and you're showing them, this is why we do this. This is why we do this. And they're asking questions. Mommy, daddy, what's this for? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Because kids are inquisitive by design, right? They ask questions. Why do we do this? Why is this here? Why do we have to say this? Why do we sing this song? Why do we read this scripture? Why do we have to do these things? And then we tell them. Now, we'll either have to lie to them about why we're doing what we're doing and tell them that it's for a different reason because we're trying to make something that is not from God, godly. Or we can implement these things that were given to us. And then when our kids ask us, we simply answer them with scripture because it was designed and instituted by God since the beginning of mankind. Let's look at first fruits. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. Go to 1 Corinthians 5, 7 again. We'll see something really cool about uh, bread and how we're supposed to eat it. Watch this. So this is the affirmation in the New Testament. We just read that Christ is our Passover lamb. Listen to what Paul says. Now, remember who he's writing to. This is the church at Corinth, just full of Gentiles and Jews and just a new church. I mean, they got stuff going on like guys sleeping with his mother-in-law and they're, everybody's rushing and getting drunk off communion wine and all sorts of crazy things. People walking around just speaking in tongues all the time and with no interpretation. I mean, they're all over the place. So he's telling these people, not just Jewish people, he's telling all of them this. Listen to this wording. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, which is what? Unleavened bread, the bread of sincerity and truth. I'm going to show you the words that he uses here. So he says malice and wickedness. Let me show you how relevant this is. The word that he uses for malice, I'd tell you the Greek, but we'd all forget it. A desire to injure, unashamed to break laws. Maybe you wouldn't forget it, but does anybody speak Greek in here? Sweet. Yeah, you, can, you guys will be judged the, the most severely for not speaking Greek. A desire to injure, unashamed to break laws. He's saying don't eat bread with malice in it. A desire to injure others or unashamed to break the laws, a defiance, a rebellion. Don't eat bread with wickedness in it, having evil purposes and evil desires. Don't eat bread like that. Instead, eat bread with sincerity and truth. Sincerity means purity and freedom from adulteration or contamination. He's saying, don't let your heart belong to anything else. Don't be contaminated by anything of this world. Truth, truth which is free from affection. That's favoritism. Meaning that you're going to treat someone differently because you favor them over another. Falsehood and deceit. Nothing false in you. Not deceiving other people to get your way. Selfish ambition, vainglory. Don't eat the bread with malice and wickedness. Eat the bread with sincerity and truth. Can you see by the way of Paul's, the way he's talking to us, that he's showing us that it's relevant for today? 
hey, unleavened bread was always supposed to be about this. It started off like this, but that was a shadow that was supposed to teach you this. Still keep it. Don't be bogged down with all the the different legalities and the specifics of everything like this. But definitely do things that help you remember that this is the way you're supposed to be. And teach your children these things forever. Feast of first fruits. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, when we think about the feast of first fruits, I want you to always remember this phrase. When it comes to first fruits, anybody mentions first fruits, this is how we think of it. There's more to come. The feast of first fruits, there's more to come. When you hear first fruits, always remember there's more to come. When we look in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, what we're going to find is Christ has been compared to the Passover lamb. We've been told to practice the festival of unleavened bread, right? By doing it the right way. And then we're about to see Christ be compared to first fruits. Watch this, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is the first fruits, which means he represents the fact that there's more to come. More what? Those who have fallen asleep but defeat death, because that's what he did. He was in the grave for three days and three nights, and he raised from the dead on what day? Feast of first fruits. He literally raised from the dead on the feast of first fruits. He was sacrificed on what day? Passover. In the same way that back in Egypt, you hear the sound of lambs going, right? Making the sounds that lambs make whenever they're being slain. And at the same time, you're also overcome with this idea that I'm being saved from death. In the same way as Jesus is being sacrificed on the cross, the Kidron Brook is now filled with blood and water as it flows down from the temple, out of the little plumbing, down through the hill, and the blood and water from the, the, the altar where they're making all the sacrifices of all the lambs, the blood and water gets washed down this plumbing and it works its way out the hill. I'll show you a picture sometime. It works its way out the hill and then it fills the Kidron Brook. And it fills it with what? Blood and water. You're literally looking at a picture of the temple and out of the side of this hill, the temple's sitting on a hill and out of the side of this hill, blood and water flow. Blood and water are flowing out of the side of the temple mount. You're hearing lambs, right? As Jesus is dying on the cross on Passover, for Gentiles and Jews to see 
The whole world. Now, when you take that into account and you go back to the third century and you hear that the group of people who separated Passover from Easter did it because they didn't want to have anything to do with those dirty Jews. You start to look and you go, wait, that's the origin. That's why I, I do Easter instead of Passover is because some people back in the third century who have a lot more sway over how we do church nowadays decided they didn't want to have anything to do with the dirty Jews. I don't feel like that. In my heart, I don't feel like I don't want to have anything to do with the dirty Jews. Well, wait a second. Is there another way to do things to where I don't have to simply get carried along with the flow of people who instituted things because they didn't want to have anything to do with dirty Jews? Yeah, there's something that was set in place from the very beginning that you can totally jump on board with. And there's a whole bunch of people around you that will support you in trying to learn how you celebrate that. In fact, we're having an event in 19 days where we're going to practice doing these things because we're trying to move against the current of the culture that says, hey, this is all you got. If you're a Christian, this is kind of what Christians do. We celebrate this. So, you know, here you go. We're going to go ahead and put this book in your hand, sir. You take this and this and this. And now your Christianity is set. Make sure if you have any problems to uh, consult, not the Bible, but consult uh, the church. And, 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 you know, don't, don't look in the Bible, actually. That's just going to cause you problems. But just do as everybody else is doing, and you won't have a problem with anything. Oh, help us, Lord. I'm telling you right now, the hardest thing about trying to do things against the culture of the church is when you do it and you feel alone. That's the hardest thing. Because I remember as we were trying to figure out what to do about Christmas, and I'm not ready to talk about Christmas yet. I'm just saying... As we were talking about Christmas in our family and what to do about it, it was so difficult because you could feel the swell of resistance if you tried to do something other than what was popular in the culture. And not just people saying, hey, you're free to do whatever you want to do. That's totally cool. But an actual resistance to that, a visceral reaction when we talk about not doing these things that are popular in Christian culture. Where people are against, not just indifferent, but against. Let me tell you, that's not sons and daughters of the living God. That's the enemy. Amen. Resisting us getting back to basics. Getting back to the way that things are supposed to be. Now, it's taken years, years for us to get to the point now where we're actually able to talk about this and a foundation has been laid. But I want to tell you, the ultimate goal has always been... For us to return, which is the word repent. To return back to what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. When it is uh, such a foreign idea for the youth, the arising generation. When, it, when it's a foreign idea to people to go out and, and worship out in the open in the middle of the city they live in. And to preach the gospel. When that seems extreme to the normal everyday Christian, we got to return. We've got to repent. When doing life together and discipleship 
is compared on the regular by Christians to a cult, we got to repent. We got to go back. When worshiping with our hands raised and dancing and singing and being joyful is seen as extreme, we should repent and we should go back. I'm not saying that everything that we're doing here is exemplary for everywhere else in the world. What I'm saying is we are humbly on our knees trying to figure out how to do what this says. And if it lines up with the way that things have always been, well then praise God. One less battle to fight. But we will not shy away from the battles where this is different than what's happening in the culture. We can't. We can't. We can't shy away from the conflict that is ours to have. The three words when it talks about Christ putting things down in 1 Corinthians 15 are arca, which is dominion. It says he will put down every dominion. That means first place, that which dominates. Christ will destroy, will dominate everything else that sets itself up in first place or that dominates power. This is dunamis, the mighty and the strong. He will show himself to be mighty and strong over those who are mighty and strong. And then authority. This word here is exousia, influence, privilege, and choice. He will show himself to have the most influence, to have the most privilege, and to ultimately have all of the choice. He will destroy all dominion, power, and authority. First fruits. This means that we are a part of that work. We are a part of the work that puts down dominion, power, and authority. Anything which sets itself up in opposition to the Lord. And we do it not by our own strength, but by what? Spirit of God. Let's turn to Ephesians 2. Just a couple more verses, guys, and then we'll wrap up. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Why? Because we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know who else? God prepared works for in advance for them to do? Jesus. We are first fruits like Jesus. We were raised with him. 
We will sleep but not die, some of us. And then we'll be with Him forever. We were created to do specific works. To destroy dominion, power, and authority here on the earth. First fruits is like the best message. Because death is the greatest enemy and it's been defeated. I was looking and it said Easter is the most important holiday for Christians to celebrate. And I'm telling you, we can all get fired up right now and we're all on the same page like, yeah, you know, Passover and, and the spring festivals. But then it's going to start coming around. People are going to call up. Okay, Susan, so you guys will be coming over at uh, 1 o'clock for Easter lunch, for Easter, Easter brunch. And then you're going to be like, oh, crap. I was real fired up at that message. Um, sure, Aunt Gertrude, we'll, we'll be there. We'll be there. And it's like, well, what should we wear? I don't know. Got these outfits. Just put on the pastels and then carry the kids. And then you get there and, oh, they're doing an Easter egg hunt. And you know what? Just forget it. I mean, it was a great idea, but just forget it. It's, you know, God accepts it. Romans 14. You know what I mean? And it'll be like that, I guarantee you. It'll, because it was like that for us. Where it's like, you're there and it's like, oh, this is kind of just what you do around this time of year. And then the current's so strong and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and then we just enjoy it and just forget all about everything that we just heard. But I'm telling you, if you'll start to stand against the current, some battles that you haven't fought in years will all of a sudden be right there in your face. You wonder how to take a stand for Jesus? You wonder how to live out your faith boldly? You want to make a difference? You want to change the world? Man, that's great. That's great. Start doing what this says, and in just a matter of minutes, probably, you'll start, find, you'll start finding some conflict. You might even find conflict against the members of your own household. Wow, that's the worst. Because they live with you. Right? But we make a decision, and then we stand by it in faith, according to the word, according to what we have received from the Lord. And we stand by that faith no matter what comes, by that decision, no matter what comes. Look at this from Leviticus 23.10 and Genesis 1.1. Do you have that slide? Genesis 1.1, we can all say it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, this word, in the reshith. God created the heavens and the eretz. In Leviticus 23.10, it says, When you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. That's what the Bible says. But what you see is that it says, bring to the priest a sheaf of the reshith you harvest. What we see is that Leviticus 23.10 is trying to send us a message because everything is so intentional in the Bible. So intentional. Not one word is misplaced. Not even one letter. I mean, even the first Hebrew, the, the first verse in the Hebrew 
It's, uh, the first sentence is, is seven words with 28 letters. I mean, it just goes on and on. You can equidistant, every 50th letter spells out Torah, you know, in Genesis and Exodus. And it spells it backwards in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And then Leviticus itself spells out Yahweh every 50th letter. I mean, it's on and on and on and on. And so there's nothing that's out of place or there by accident. It's comparing it to the beginning. And what it's saying is when you get into the land, make sure that you give the first grain to the priest. And he's comparing it back to the beginning. I think that what you see here, I think the message that this is trying to convey is that earth and mankind itself is some sort of first fruits for all of creation. Man, I would love it if there was a verse to support that. Turn to James 1.18. I saw AJ giving me that look. You better have a verse to support that. Man, he even phrased it like that. Come on. James 1.18, are y'all there? He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Man, that's like a freebie. To affirm to us, yeah. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. You're watching a plan of, of redemption unfold. It's not something to be ignored. It's something to be implemented. You say, well, how am I going to do it? Great question. Great question. Let's work together. Let's work together. Let's do it together. Because we're trying to do the same thing. Oh, but I'm going to encounter some obstacles. Yeah, for sure. Anytime you want to do righteousness, you will find resistance. You will find obstacles that stand in your way. But watch this message. Without intervention, I'm going to die. That's where he found all of us, isn't it? Without intervention, I'm going to die. And then what are we prompted to do when we're shown that kind of love? Man, get everything out that doesn't belong. How many of you in here burned CDs or erased files or got rid of movies or did things like that? Anybody else got rid of friends, stopped saying certain words? And you just, why? Because you got to get out everything that doesn't belong, Right? And then when you start to see it and you start watching yourself live like that, it's like, oh, there's more to come. There's more to come. I'm going to keep doing this over and over and over again. When I start to see death in my life, I'm going to get it out because it doesn't belong. And then I'm going to find life from the dead. And I'm going to start destroying dominion, powers, and authorities. I'm going to start doing the specific works that he created in advance for me to do. Because he set this plan up from the beginning. So that we could be a first fruits on display for all of creation. Showing them that he knows how to bring redemption. This is what we're doing. Now, when you compare that to what we've typically been practicing. You tell me why we have eggs. Tell me why we have bunnies. Tell me why we have chocolates and pastels. Come on, somebody. Tell me something about that that's better than what we just got done talking about. Tell me something about that. And you know what? It goes on and on and on and on. We don't have to settle for cheap substitutes. We were given the real thing. The real thing. Something about you feels guilty when you eat McDonald's. I know it does because it does for me too. And something about you feels so good when you eat a farm-to-table meal. You eat some fresh greens from the garden. Something about that feels so right. I'm telling you, this is fresh food. Health 
food. We don't have to settle for McDonald's anymore. Now I'm still going to eat McDonald's, but I'm talking about Easter. I can't help it. It's so cheap and it's right across the street. It's the current that's pulling me along. I'm telling you guys, this is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be an adventure. And people come at you and they've got all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't be doing those kind of things and, and this and this and that. And you just love them. And you love them. And then you remember how you were in the position where you opposed God at one time. That's how you have mercy on people. Whenever you begin to shift things and you begin to change things, yeah, you'll find resistance. Don't feel like a victim. Don't cry for yourself and, and whine about how difficult it is. Know that God is for you and not against you. And that he will see you through these many trials and perseverance must finish its work in you so you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then love the person because that's your opportunity to do it. It's easy to love someone who loves you, right? Even the pagans do that. But now to love your enemy, that's hard. That's Christ. So if you feel that you might receive resistance, just go ahead and accept it. Yeah, I'm going to get resistance, right? It's going to be there. I got to love these people and I got to stand by what I feel the Lord leading me to do. Bring up real quick the uh, calendar of the feast. I want to show you guys this because over the next three weeks, we're going to be studying these things. That's so small. I didn't plan on it being so small. Look. Okay. This is Passover right here. Spring holidays. This is a biblical holidays. There's seven of them. Passover. The next day, like the same, like within 24 hours, unleavened bread, first fruits, three feasts, boom, 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 right there inside of a week, Passover. Jesus dies on Passover. He searched the entire time. They search before he dies on the cross, while he dies on the cross, after he raises from the dead, no sin in him. He's definitely the Messiah, right? Unleavened bread, first fruits. He rises from the dead on first fruits. Next week, Pastor Nick's going to talk about Pentecost. But what you can see is this is one giant timeline, and these were fulfilled during Jesus's days. Okay? We're going to watch and we're going to see. It's not just about holidays that we celebrate. We're going to see that this is actually Jesus providing a roadmap for us to understand what his plan is for the whole world. It's so much deeper than even what we talked about today. This is just scratching the surface. And you're going to start to see, man, God's not requiring you to do this. He's inviting you to do it. This is an invitation. Let's stand up to our feet. When you look in the beginning in Genesis, and we read about those lights, it said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. That word seasons is not summer, winter, fall, and spring. That's not what it is. That word is moed, and it's the same word used in Leviticus 23 for festivals. It marked the seasons. So before festivals even began, what he was saying is let the stars in the sky mark the festivals. This is what we see. We can know where we're at in his plan by observing the festivals. So I want to invite you guys on September 22nd, invite everybody that you know. 
Everybody's welcome. We'll make room. It'll all work out. It'll be great. It'll be fantastic. But start holding your hands open for God to remove the things that don't belong and to put in them the things that do. Are we together? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these people in this room. God, I thank you that your truth is so good, that it's so eternal, it's so gracious, but it's also so convicting. Father, I pray that we would not shy away from things that we're convicted on, that we'd not harden our hearts, but instead we would say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. My life is yours. Do with me whatever you want. I pray that that would be our response and that we'd be unified in every way that we would rid our lives of the things that don't belong and that we would repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat so we could show the world that, hey, there's more to come and that the love that's inside of our hearts that you put there as a gift would drive out fear all over the world. Teach us how to be Christians, not just inside this room, but with everyone that we meet, everywhere that we go. Let us live boldly, full of your spirit, understanding what your will is and understanding the times. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys.